You're listening to the Sketchnote Army Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Rohde, the author of the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook. And this is the podcast where I chat with sketchnoters and visual thinkers and try to understand what makes them tick. This episode of the Sketchnote Army Podcast is brought to you by the Sketchnote Handbook that tells the story of how I solved a note-taking problem and in the process coined the term sketchnotes. My best-selling book teaches you how to draw simply to capture ideas instead of worrying about art quality. It features simple-to-follow steps for building your drawing skills, helps you create a visual library, and showcases a wide variety of sketchnotes by global creators. Best of all, it's designed as a book-length sketchnote. Pick up a copy of the Sketchnote Handbook for yourself or for someone you just know will love sketchnoting. To learn more about my books, visit roadesign.com books. Use the code RODY40 for 40% off the book at peachpit.com. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sketchnote Army Podcast. Um, I'm here and I'm excited to welcome Emily Mills. Emily, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. You're welcome. Um, you appeared on this show in the past. I can't at the moment remember which um, season it was, but you were um, under... A different name. You were Emily Carlton at the time. Uh, we will definitely put the show notes, uh, link to the show notes in there so people can hear that original recording. But uh, lots happened since your last time on the show and specifically one big thing. And I thought I would have you on the show to talk a little bit about that because it's pretty exciting. So um, why don't you start uh, for those who maybe missed that episode or just started listening. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do these days. Yeah, my name is Emily Mills, and I am a freelance designer and illustrator. Um, I'd like to just call myself a visual communicator. So I do so many different things, whether it's websites or print design or sketchnoting, but it all kind of falls under the umbrella of visual communicator. So that's pretty much what I do. Everything I do is visual communication. Mm, I think that's a that's a really great way to describe it, and I feel a lot of this in, in the same way. And what I do is just this generalist that does lots of different things. I think that's can be valuable too, right? Because you can shift and cover a lot of bases. So that's really yeah, great. Yeah, definitely. And um, we, I, I like to ask people that are on the show um, how they kind of stumbled into this space, sketch noting, visual note taking, uh, visual stuff. Uh, tell us your story of how you came to where you are now. Sure. So I fell into sketchnoting pretty much by accident. I had seen some work before, but I didn't know that's what it was called. And um, a friend, I used to live in Texas, a friend in Houston asked me to come do some whiteboard videos for his film studio for a client that they had. And so I did the whiteboard videos and I put them on my portfolio. And then um, I figured out that was a much bigger thing and people were doing way better job than I had just done. So it was, it opened my eyes to the possibilities of the medium itself. And then that portfolio piece led to getting a job with a company that did um, graphic recording and sketch noting. And um, then I took your workshop when I first moved to Nashville. Um, I think that was in March, 2015. So I had been yeah. in Nashville for all of a month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always uh, think of sketch noting beginning right when I got to Nashville. And so mm. it's like, it's always been a part of my modern life right now. <laughs> mm. You're the remaking of Emily Mills, I guess. In a yes. 
That's pretty cool. And the, the funny thing about that workshop, it was a, kind of an experiment to see if a half-day format would work because I had been doing more full-day things. wanted to see what if I did two half-day workshops. And I learned a lot at that one. The Skillery was the location, which was a really mm-hmm. great space. Um, and they were super accommodating. So that was it was fun to meet you. And it's for me, it's been really fun to see sort of how you've taken off and all the stuff you're up to. So it's pretty cool to now sort of come full circle and have you on the show. So yeah, it's fun to see how all the things you're doing and especially exciting to now talk about a very exciting thing for you, which is um, your new book. So we, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yay! Exactly. It's exciting. So, um, so you've sort of got into this whole space by doing some work, some whiteboard uh, work, and then then you became sort of an itinerant, um, um, a visual note taker, I guess. A graphic recorder maybe is the right way to say it because it was large scale. Um, why don't you talk about a little bit about that part of your life and, and your transition, I think, from being a graphic designer into that space, which is similar but in a lot of ways different. Yeah, so I went to, I went to college for um, graphic design. I was my major and I really wanted to be an illustrator when I grew up. I wanted to be a cartoonist. And so that was also the recession. And so I went to college in the middle of the recession and everyone was saying, you need to get a job that's practical and you made it, you need to major in something where you can get a paycheck. So graphic design seemed to be like the most logical choice that I could do art, but also get a paycheck. And so graphic design really complements sketch noting and graphic recording really well because it's both visual, you're learning about hierarchy and communication and um, efficiency layout. And there's really a lot of overlap. It's just that one is mainly on a computer and one is done by hand. So um, I mentioned I'm a graphic designer and illustrator. I used to work for different companies throughout my career. And then I would also do contract design work for a company called The Sketch Effect, where I would go to live events and do sketch notes or graphic recording for clients, whether it was a conference or a meeting or a brainstorming session. And I would actually take vacation from my real job to go do this fun job where I was drawing pictures for people and getting paid for it. And it was Hmm. the best thing ever. Um, So now I've actually gone independent. I don't work for anybody except for myself anymore. And I've actually retired from the live event work, but in that I've stepped away from working for other people, it also gives me more time to kind of teach what I know and start formulating kind of curriculums and lessons for people now that I've kind of built up a following online and people have started asking me for help. It's like, I feel this responsibility and privilege to teach people about what I know, and I am really interested in it. I still love sketchnoting and graphic recording, so I really enjoy being able to teach people to do what I do. Hmm. That's that's a really great um, transition and sort of interesting to see your path going from taking a job because you felt like you had to have a paycheck to now, yeah. as you've sort of paid your dues, I guess is the old term, right? You sort of Put in your hours. I mean, I've seen so many different pictures and videos of you on Instagram jumping on beds at events that you're about to do graphic recording on. That <laughs> yes. was sort of your tradition, right? That so, is my trademark. I have to jump on the bed every time I travel. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, 
usually when Michael Clayton and I are together, we'll sort of check Instagram and see if we have any videos and we'll watch them and laugh at, with each other at you jumping. Good. Ahead, so. <laughs> so he's a fan as well. Old Mike Clayton. Um, that's really, that's really interesting to hear that sort of that arc and sort of the, tr- the transition that you're making toward doing your own thing and teaching, which is pretty exciting. Um, Talk a little bit more about when you do workshops or you're teaching. Do you do any individual teaching? Talk, talk a little bit about sort of that work that you're doing. Yeah. So 2017 was the year that I began teaching workshops. Um, I had just gotten a lot of um, requests for people to have me do a workshop for them, or they would say, I live in such and such place. Can you come do a workshop? And it just got to the point where it's like, can I do a workshop? I mean, I, I didn't feel qualified to do one, but at the same time, if people are repetitively asking you, you probably are qualified and you should probably look into it a little bit more. So um, I looked into it and it felt really daunting to do a workshop out of state for other people that I didn't know. And so I just turned down every request that was out of state because it was way too much for a beginner. Um, instead I had a friend in Chattanooga, which is about two and a half hours away from Nashville. And he said, I want to bring you in for a workshop. We'll do all the marketing. Um, we'll pay for the room. It was at a church. And so that alleviated so much pressure. All I had to do was come in, teach what I knew, and then just engage with the students. And that was a really good starting point for me to validate the content and see what the students resonated with, what they didn't, what um, exercises they liked and what they didn't. And so that, that was in January, 2017. So after that, I did six more workshops that year. Uh, some were sketch note specific, some were illustration uh, specific, but almost all of them focused on the kind of work that I do, which is visual communication, sketch noting, drawing. And that's, grown over the years from just specific sketchnoting workshops to now a book and online courses. Mm. So that's a really great transition that you've just um, uh, mentioned. And is of course, the book is one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on. But also, you know, I think many people think about um, this dream to write a book and they maybe have this vision of, you know, eating bonbons and submitting their script <laughs> and, you know, like this unrealistic romantic idea what a, what a book – making a book is like. And then as we both know, it's nothing like that at all. It's actually can be a struggle at times, although you, you it's, <laughs> sometimes it's horrible. <laughs> exactly. So I think it would be really interesting for you to talk a little bit about how the, because I think the, the online workshops sort of came a little bit before the books, if I remember, or they came around the same time. How do those fit together? And then let's lead into talking about your experience in writing the book. What was that like and how did it, how did it happen? Yeah. So the reason I was doing all these workshops in the first place was to validate my ideas um, that I'd been writing about. I'd been writing about sketchnoting and blogging a little bit, and I didn't actually share a lot of it, um, but I was still really interested in learning more about visual communication, visual note-taking. And so the workshops were a way to um, validate everything. And then once I had all my ideas validated, then I felt like I could put that online because I didn't want to create an online course for something that had never been tested with real people. And so, um, I had alongside doing the workshops, every time I would finish a workshop, I would do sort of a debrief of, okay, here are the things that works. Here's 
what didn't, and then that would help me do the next workshop. But I would also keep those notes and refine the content for the purpose of putting it online for an online course. And I had never actually launched the course, but I had written out all the lessons, or at least a lot of the lessons. And so by the time I had been doing this for the better part of a year, um, the publisher found me on Instagram and they said, hey, we love your sketch notes. Uh, we read some of your blogs. We really like your content. Can you write a book on this subject? And it came out of the blue for me. I didn't expect that. And I don't think that happens for a lot of people. I think most publishers wait for the authors to come to them, not the other way around. But I think publishing might be changing. I'm not sure. So because the publisher had asked me to write the book, it was sort of a no-brainer because I had written all of the chapters. It was just in the form of an online course instead. So it was actually a very smooth process for the first half of the book because I had written so much of the content and tested it, and I was really confident with everything that was happening. Hmm. So that leads me to the question, what happened at the second half? Because if the first half was smooth, yeah. did this, was the second half as smooth or did you have more struggles um, with the content? I definitely had more struggles with the second half of the book because I hadn't written those courses out yet. Um, I had taught everything in the book already, but I didn't have all of the blogs and the journaling and the backup questions done. And so while I was writing those lessons out for the book, it felt like a lot more work because I had to kind of think about transitioning the content from an online course to a book format. Like it's not the same as a novel where you can just keep talking and talking and talking for as long as you want because you have all these pages. But with a workbook, it's a little different because you're limited to certain number of pages and the publisher has a very specific index that they want you to follow. And so I had to do a lot of content shifting and prioritizing and it was a lot more work, but at the same time, it was really rewarding to work through all that, all of that. Hmm. And, you know, if you look at the book now, which, which is now uh, released and out, um, I mean, I looked through it, I couldn't tell that there was a seam in the middle. Like it didn't feel like oh, this is the first half and it's like this and the second half is different. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it feels really consistent all the way through, right? So I think you did a really good job of um, continuing the the process, even though it was different. And um, talk a little bit about how did the publishing process work for you? So did you outline the structure? Did the publisher define it? And how did you how did you sort of work out the writing and the illustration and all that kind of stuff? What was that process like? It was really fascinating. So I don't really know anything about book writing or publishing. I'd been to a writer's conference before just for the purpose of getting my motivation going to finish the online courses. But then it, that writer's conference actually turned out to be very beneficial when the book thing came along. Um, call it Providence or luck. I'm not really sure, but I'm really glad I went to the writer's conference. And um, so the publisher approached me and they said, hey, we have a book about sketch notes that we want to be written. And the working title is called The Art of Visual Note-Taking. Are you interested? So I, I thought it was very interesting that I, they had already picked out the subject matter and they had already picked out the title and they mm. were looking for authors. Um, and so after we had gone back and forth for a few months and their timing had changed and then uh, I got an agent to help negotiate some things. 
Um, after that, it was pretty smooth sailing. Um, having an agent was really helpful in navigating some of the processes that I was completely naive about. And he was able to negotiate some things that I wouldn't have never guessed that I would want to have. But um, a writer friend of mine had suggested getting an agent because he said, if even if you never write a second book, you want to leave yourself the option to set the stage for that second book. And so an agent is going to help you set that stage really well, much more so than you could probably do on your own because they just, they're experts. That's why you hire experts is to have them do what they're good at so that you can do what you're good at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's good. And then, uh, so the publisher had worked with the agent and I about timelines. Um, The book's, I think we signed the contract in February of 2018 and then we started writing the book and I think our first deadline was in March and I was getting married in April. And so it was very time crunchy and I was already stressed with trying to move and get married and plan a wedding out of state. And um, my agent was like, Hey, how about we negotiate for some timelines so you don't have to do any writing for the month of April, which was when I was getting married. And so I just didn't know you could do that. It was so helpful to have someone say, don't kill yourself. Let's negotiate around this. And the publisher was really great about working with that too. So we had seven total deadlines and uh, or batches, I guess. And each batch was about 20 to 30 pages. Um, the book is 128 pages total. And the full the book is fully illustrated and... So along with the writing for each batch, I had to also provide the illustrations. So it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to illustrate one. And it's a completely different thing to do both for yourself at the same time, which you know because you did it too, Mike. <laughs> yep. Twice. Yep. It's, it's <laughs> definitely uh, raises the stakes a little bit. So I, I definitely can relate to that. It's We're in, in a similar company there for sure. <laughs> yes. And it was actually really embarrassing. I was so naive and new to everything that I turned in my first, um, the two batches were two uh, grouped together, the first deadline. And so I turned in about 40 pages worth of writing and they're like, Hey, this is great. Where are the illustrations? And I hadn't done any of them because I, for some reason, um, so when you're a graphic designer, you don't really design anything until you have the copy done because the copy really dictates so much of the design. And so that's just, my default was, well, why would I illustrate the book if I don't know if the content is finalized yet? Like no one's edited this. So that was a faux pas on my part. And I had to furiously come up with 40 pages worth of illustrations uh, the next couple days that I emailed, but it was a very good learning process. <laughs> wow. You didn't, I guess you didn't do that the next time, right? You were prepared at least then after the first batch. Oh yes. For every other deadline, I made sure that I had the writing and the illustrations done. Hmm. I suppose now looking back, if you had a second book, you might even negotiate just like you did to not have to do any during your wedding preparation or that period of time that maybe even negotiate that the yeah. that the text comes first and you vet it all, you know, before you do any illustrations. Because I could imagine what if you did all those illustrations and a third of them aren't any good because they changed the content or cut something that wouldn't feel great, right, to right. throw away all that work. Right. And that was another thing that I learned about the book writing process is that just, well, one, that publishers have a very different flow than a designer or agency might. 
And that was really fascinating to learn about. And so having this graphic design background, um, so for one example, the publisher had sent me a draft one of the book cover and I just hated it. It was so bad in my opinion. And I was like, I wouldn't buy that book. I think it's ugly. But then (laughs) the publisher was able to talk to me about how books are designed and that just because something is well-designed doesn't mean that it sells well. And so I had to humble myself and kind of eat crow because I needed to trust my publisher that, hey, they're experts. They've sold a lot of books. They probably know what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. we were able to come to the cover, which I like now. Um, It's still not something I would design for myself if I were self-publishing, but I think the publisher knows what they're doing, and I really like the art of visual note-taking cover now, but that was just one example Mm. of learning about the publishing business and that you can't always get what you want, but you will always get what you need. (laughs) Mm. I think that's a song, isn't it? An old Beatles song? I think so. (laughs) Rolling Stones? I'm not sure. Anyway, well, that's that's really interesting, (laughs) especially for someone who, you know, there might be, be, there may be potential future authors listening who, again, like you and me, when we did our first books, I had no clue what it was like. I had lots of graphic design experience, but I didn't know how the publishing world worked. I think going back to you made a comment about having a having a literary agent was super helpful for me, just like it sounds like it was for you, to negotiate for things that you don't think about. And they're experts in that space, so they can tell you uh, what to avoid and sort of think ahead for you and avoid you getting into pickles like having to do work over your honeymoon or something like that, right? So um, <laughs> right. It, that seems like it was a really good move to have. I know my agent has been great, and that was a lot of the reason that I chose one is to have someone in my corner, as much as I love the publisher that I worked with, someone who I, I could ask dumb questions instead of my publisher and get answers to them and understand what was going on, right? So mm-hmm. having that having that person in your corner is really great, I think. I agree. So let's shift a little bit to now. Um, you've got the book um, pretty well finished. Uh, was the was the end of the work pretty uh, frantic and intense, or because the publisher sort of laid out the schedule that everything, like all the submissions, go pretty smoothly? Like, how did that part of it work up to the point where you finished all the work and then you just released it to the publisher to do their magic? Um, I think it was mostly smooth up until the very last submission, the last deadline. I think it was the last 20 pages. And the deadline before that, I had felt a little like I was starting to run out of things to say. And so I was worried about the last 20 pages. But um, the more I sat with that last deadline, the more I realized I actually have way more to say. Um, I just... I just needed to think about it more and write more. Um, So I ended up actually writing way more than was actually published. And the editors cut a lot of things out of the book, which I think ultimately was helpful. But at the same time, it's nice to know that you can write too much. And then the editor's job is to pick the best things out. And that way you don't have the pressure of writing only the bare minimum and then they have to keep everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so that was really helpful. And then, Um, the layout had changed. So 
when they had first approached me, they said it'll be a 130-page book, half will be content, and half will be blank pages for doing all of these exercises, which to me sounded great because then I only had to write half of a book. Uh, mm -hmm. But then they changed their minds and they said, actually, we want more content than empty pages. And then I was like, oh, no, can I actually do this? <laughs> but it, when someone asks you to write a book, you just say yes and figure it out as you go. Um, and so... I was actually proud of myself that I was able to write the full book and that I had enough to say because I doubted myself. Um, but yeah, that last uh, deadline was really difficult because I had to, I felt like I had to fill the pages. I didn't fill it with anything that I didn't practice or believe or teach before, but there were definitely some regrets of, man, I wish I had just gone deeper into something in chapter two that I don't really have the freedom to go back and add to it now. I just need to add something else on the end. Like you can't go back to something that you've already submitted and just mm -hmm. add more and kind of push everything out, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, I mean, we, we probably could have, but it would have made a lot more work and it might've shifted our timeline even more. So it was just better to come up with something good to close out the book and, I think we did that. And then I think at the very end of the book, they ended up cutting it anyway, and they per, uh, turned it into a bonus PDF that was, hmm. um, you can download it once you buy the art of visual note-taking. If you go to the last page or the second to the last page, it's like, here's a PDF of even more stuff. And that's mm -hmm. what the last part of the book was. Hmm. And I, I downloaded that when, when I got the book too, and it was kind of cool to see it's more, what would be the right way to say it's more specifically applicable to doing sketch noting, I think. Um, yeah. More detailed and specific than, you know, the book is more of a general, I mean, it has, the book has specific direction, but I mean, it's a general idea around this concept where I think the PDF has mm -hmm. felt more specific around a topic. Um, yeah. And so, that was my favorite part to write almost because it mm. was answering a lot of the frequently asked questions that I get like, okay, I'm doing sketch noting. I've been doing it for a little bit, but the speaker just ended 20 minutes early. What do I do? And so the last part of that book or the PDF rather is answering those questions of what do I do when. Mm. That's a, that's a great way to approach that. And then I imagine whatever else that they may be cut could maybe even be formed into some things on your online course, which is sort of what started everything out was you wanted to do this online course and then that turned into the book and now you've written the book and maybe you've got ideas mm -hmm. that didn't fit into the book and now you can turn it into more lessons in the online course, which, you know, then you, they just keep bouncing back and forth in that way. Yeah, definitely. And uh, when the book came out, uh, people started saying, okay, so when's your next one coming out? And it was just like, don't even say that. I've run out of things to say. I've taught everything I know how to teach, but I'm working on more online courses. And the more I do these courses and the more I try and teach, it's like, okay, I actually do have more to say. I just didn't realize it. And I can go way deeper on a lot of the the subjects that I covered in the art of visual note-taking. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in having one specific course on one very specific thing that a lot of people are curious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can go super deep on really nerdy details if you want. Um, I'm a member of Skillshare and just today, um, Aaron Draplin released a video on there and all he talks about is like how to name your files and how to structure your palettes and in Illustrator. So, I mean, it's super focused. It's on this one application for designers 
and he's going totally nerdy. Like you're not actually doing a project. You're just, he's teaching you how to set up your system instead of being a mess. So that's right. sort of where you can go, right? Where you could take uh, what, maybe there's something in chapter two you wanted to really go into. You could go super deep on that and make that a whole course in, you know, Sketchnote Academy. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I really like being able to have something for everybody, whether you're nominally, marginally interested in sketchnoting and you just want to learn about it to the all out nerd who just learned about it and they want to learn everything to the person who's been doing it for several years and they just need to nerd out hard on one specific thing. Like I love having different access points for different kinds of people. Yeah. I think that's a great way to approach it. And, um, that brings me to the next question. What was it like? So two things. What was it like to wait for the book to release? Because you probably submitted it way before the release. Then you had to sit on it like forever and wait for it to release. And then, <laughs> then tell me what it was like when it launched and sort of the feedback you're getting. Maybe those are the two things that are kind of interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, our, my last deadline was in August of 2018. And I met the deadline. I turned everything in and that was, um, the book was then slated for a January release. So August, September, October, November, December, like six, seven months later. And I was like, all right, six, seven months. That's fine. I can wait. Um, and I just figured they would be showing me designs and they would be showing me, me the book covers. And I didn't really hear anything until December. Hmm. And, um, by that point, I was like, hey, is this book thing happening? I had to talk to my agent because the publisher wasn't very responsive. And my agent told me, oh, yeah, the book um, is having some issues with the book buyers. The book buyers don't like the cover. Um, they have to redo the cover again. And so that's when the book actually got pushed back to March, hmm. which I found out, unfortunately, through Amazon. I was looking at my book listing on Amazon to see if there was anything I needed to update. And it said slated release for March. And I kind of freaked out and told my agent like, Hey, Amazon says it's March, but you told me it's January. What's happening? So it was unfortunate that I had to find out that way, but mm -hmm. that's just how things are like balls get dropped and craziness. And so that was disappointing. But at the same time, I was more than willing to wait for the book to be at a place where people wanted to buy it and that book buyers were happy and that the editing was good. And so I think it was in um, January when we started looking at different book covers and they were showing me the finals and I was still fighting them at that point and saying, no, do better design. And they were saying, no, this is what sells well. And so it was a struggle, but at the same time, it was a really good learning experience. Um, it felt really good to have everything done. I didn't like waiting and I didn't like not mm. knowing. And when I finally got the PDF version of the book to review the design, it was really cool just to see like my work that someone else had sort of laid out and designed. And even though they might've made a design or layout that I wouldn't have picked, it was sort of refreshing to see someone follow my logic and design a page in such a way that, really aligns with how I would do it in a lot of ways. And so it was like, okay, good, you get me. Um, and so there were some design choices and tweaks that we made to like fonts and colors, but overall they were really small changes. And so 
by the time the book actually launched, there was another snafu where normally you get um, an advanced copy of the book before it releases or before it appears in stores. And the publisher had sent the books to my agent and not to me. And my agent didn't know where the box was. He's like, I didn't get them. It turns out, I think they were sitting at the post office. Mm-hmm. And so um, I got this girl on Instagram the week before my book launched. She messaged me and said, hey, I just bought your book in Asheville, North Carolina. I love it. Thank you so much. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like The book hasn't released and you bought one and you're holding it. And I'm so angry because you you are holding it in your hand and I've never even seen it outside of my wow. computer screen. So that was frustrating. But at the same time, it was also a good lesson and just like letting go and being okay with it and just letting it be what it is and letting people enjoy it, even if I didn't get to enjoy it first. So um, not exactly ideal, but I really, once I did know that she was able to go out and buy the book, I um, texted my husband and I said, some girl in North Carolina just bought my book. And I wonder if other bookstores have it early. And I was kind of moaning to him like, oh, it's not fair, blah, blah, woe is me. I don't have my book in my hands and other people do. And uh, he actually left work and went to Barnes and Noble and bought one and then brought it to me at home because I work from home. And that was a really nice surprise to get my book from my husband instead of from some box or the publisher. So it turned out to be okay. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, it's it, the, the, the thing I kept thinking about is when you said – that they delayed it because the buyers didn't like the cover. It's like, you should have listened to Emily when she told you that the first time because right? <laughs> you're fighting them over the right. cover design. You know, you, she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, but all things considered, the publisher was really good about listening to my feedback. Like, they didn't ever once tell me we're not listening to you. They always mm. welcomed my feedback and my input, which I really, really mm. appreciated. Now, they didn't always listen, but they would usually communicate this is the way things are and here's why. And um, they did change the things that I was absolutely like, this is a deal breaker kind of change. They changed all of those. So I have a lot of respect for them. Mm -hmm. So I guess you sort of explained what launch day was like, right? It sort of snuck up on you and your husband brought home a copy (laughs) for you, right? It wasn't you know, Austin Kleon yeah. just released a book and he had like stacks of them for months before he could they released. So he's had them for a long time. So that's like the opposite yeah. story. Definitely. So if I write book number two, I will be um, clarifying that point with the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, the book released, uh, Visual Art, The Art of Visual Note-Taking is live in the world now. And it was, I had recruited some people to be on my launch team, which just meant hey, when the book launches, just share about it on social media or uh, write a review online. Or um, if you're a blogger, blog about it. If you're a videographer, make a video about it. Like I didn't want to put a lot of rules around it. I just said, hey, in whatever way that you share with people, if you don't mind sharing the book, that'd be great. And so that way on launch day, people can see that others have written or not written, uh, others have read the book and that they've read a review or wrote, left a review and it looks like something they might be interested in. That's the whole mm-hmm. point of reviews is to mm-hmm. help someone considering buying the book to actually buy the book. And so launch team was all about writing reviews and sharing about it. Hmm. Well, that's really great. And um, so what's, do you have any interesting or fun stories about buyers? I noticed that um, 
I have friends in Paris uh, who just received a copy. Um, have there been in what's yeah, the farthest Celine. the book's gone? Yeah, Celine. Yeah, so Celine had, had a picture of uh, your book and I think Mauro Tacelli's book as well that she added to her collection. So, have there been any fun stories like that you can tell us about um, having the book launch and appearing in someone's hands that maybe you didn't expect or in a faraway place or something like that? Um, not as much with the faraway place. I think Celine mm. in Paris is the farthest that I'm aware my book went. Um, but it was really humbling to see people who I either met once or twice and, or we follow each other online, but we're not close friends or anything like that. They would send me a message with them holding the book saying like, I mean, I don't do sketch notes, but I wanted to support you and I bought a copy today. And that just meant the world to me because it's like you put all this effort into something that you think is for somebody who's really, really interested in and then someone who's really not interested buys it anyway. And that's really cool because then it's an opportunity for them to share it with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I was just really humbled that people wanted to buy it, um, whether they were friends or followers or um, acquaintances or close friends. That was really neat to see that people wanted to support me even if they weren't into sketchnoting. And um, I had a lot of people message me from other countries. Um, I think particularly Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. like the Caribbean area of people wanting the book, but it not being available. And so mm -hmm. they were begging me for a Kindle version, which didn't exist at the time of the launch. But then I think we launched a Kindle version a week later. So that made a lot of people in other countries happy where they couldn't actually get the book. Yeah, that's that's great. By the time, so I, I was one of the early pre-orders, but we also moved. So my my copy of the book went to our <laughs> old house. So I just went ahead and and purchased it from Amazon, and then they offered me, I think it was for two dollars more, I could get the the Kindle version. So I have it on on my iPad as well as a physical. Well, I, now I have two copies because because Amazon <laughs> um, sent it to the wrong place. They sent me another one to replace it. So I actually have two. So I'll need to find someone to great. give it away to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, I think you did a great job and, um, I'm really proud of all the stuff you've gone through to produce this work. And it's, it's a fun, it's a fun experience to have written a book. It's not always fun to be writing it. <laughs> um, there are fun moments, <laughs> yes. right? It's, it's just good to be on the other side of it and not, it gives you lots of opportunities. Um, now you've got more credibility for doing workshops and you've got experience doing that. So that's another direction that I, you certainly could go. Um, so is that something that you're thinking about doing now that you've got the book? Is that part of your future plan is to start doing workshops and things around the content? What's, what's the next thing for you? Um, I'm still trying to figure out that very question. So I have, I've been asked to do some speaking and not necessarily speaking about like a workshop type format, but actually a lecture type format. And mm. that's uh, new for me, but I'm really enjoying it. I've done one speaking gig so far this year, or actually two, and I really enjoyed that. And so a lot of people want to learn about visual notes or visual communication or illustration as sort of the dipping of the toe into the pond of the world of sketchnoting. And the book is how they found out about it. And so they may not want a couple hour workshop on sketchnoting, but they are interested in having me come talk about it to help people get introduced to the idea. So that's one direction. Mm -hmm. um, I'm offering 
the possibility of workshops um, on my website. Hey, if you want me to come to your event or um, your meeting to come lead a workshop on sketchnoting, let me know. But I haven't gotten a lot of interest on that. I think most people see sketchnoting as something that is more of a hobby and not necessarily something to be taught. And so I'm more of an authority figure on teaching them about it rather than teaching them to do mm. it. So that's been an interesting distinction that I've noticed. And then um, I'm mostly interested in pouring back into the online courses and going deeper on those subjects like we talked about earlier and just creating more content for people that are interested. I think the the book, The Art of Visual Note-Taking, is a really good introduction to people. And if that interests them, then an online course would be a better option for them once they're more ingrained and practiced. Hmm. Well, that's, those sound like great directions to go. It sounds like you got options. And I think, you know, now that you've done the book and you start getting into the speaking, it probably just takes time for it to sort of pick up and, you know, eventually someone's going to want to do workshops and you've already done some. So I suspect it's just a matter of timing and, you know, opportunities. So that's really great to yeah, hear. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so one thing I wanted to get into a little bit is we try to do some practical stuff in each one of these episodes. And I thought it would be good. Um, you've given three tips on the previous podcast, but we want to have you do three new tips on on a podcast on this podcast. So why don't you give us the three tips you have for someone who's maybe they're into sketch noting, maybe they've hit, they've hit a plateau and they just need a little encouragement. Um, what would be some tips that you might recommend three tips for them? Yeah. I think the thing that I tried to drive home the most, whether it's on Instagram or in a video or an online course, or even the book, the number one thing I always want people to do is to document and share their work. Like, I don't care if it's horrible. I don't, care if you hate it. I just want you to share it because I remember I shared a picture of my very first sketch note on Instagram and I was so embarrassed, but I just had this mindset of like, what if this is the start of something really cool? And this is just the first step. And I'm glad I had that foresight way back then to just share something I wasn't proud of because now I can go back and look at it and see all the growth that I've had over the years. And I want that opportunity for other people too. So if you share your work, you can see your growth. And um, one thing I, I think I've said before on the last podcast we recorded is um, it's you don't remember what it's like to not know something. And once you're really advanced in something, whether it's uh, your job or a skill, you're not going to remember what it was like to not know those things because the neural pathways are formed in your brain. So if you share your work, that way you can remember what it was like to not know something. But if you don't share it and you don't document your processes, you're going to forget it. Mm-hmm. That's good and stuff. And then as, as a second point, which is pretty related to the first one, is just practice regularly. Um, I sketchnoted every day for a month in 2017, and I saw a lot of breakthrough and a lot of growth because I was doing it regularly. Now, I typically only sketched out maybe one or two times a week now, but sketching every single day was a really good accelerator for growth and learning and experimentation. So if you're interested in taking leaps and bounds, I recommend doing it every single day. 
And then I think my last point would be to find community. And I really love the Sketchnote Army Slack channel. And I love the hashtags and the communities around those on Instagram. And there's Sermon Sketchnotes community. And there's Sketchnote camp in or International Sketchnote camp in Paris, I think, again. Or outside mm-hmm, Paris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Like there's so many opportunities out there, whether you're mildly interested or hard out nerd. So I just really encourage people to get involved and find their people. Those are great tips. I think, um, especially the last one, I think community I've noticed in the time that I've been doing it has been a huge uh, impact um, on other people and also on me seeing what people are doing is gets me very excited to see how they take this concept and use it in ways I never would have imagined physicists using it to document scientific information or like crazy stuff like that. So um, we need you if yeah, you're especially... Yeah, it's so fascinating to see all the different ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we really need people who do, do, do different things with it because otherwise we can't imagine how to apply it in those unique ways. So that's why we need new people in the community to keep pushing and stretching uh, what can be done with it because then we all learn from that and it makes it a better community. Well, Absolutely. Th- thank you so much for being on the show, Emily. It's uh, it's really fun to see your book coming out, seeing how excited you are, seeing all the stuff you're doing. Um, really proud of you. So thanks for sharing and putting in all the hard effort. Um, I hope that it really is paying off well and that you're proud of the work that you're doing. It sounds like you are. And um, keep on going. We We need you in the community too. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate I really appreciate you having me on. No, not a problem. And for all those listening to the show, this will wrap this episode of the Sketchnote Army Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sketchnote Army Podcast. This podcast was created by me, Mike Rohde, and is edited and produced by John Schiedemeyer, who also created the theme music for the show. Special thanks to Chris Wilson for the show notes each episode. To support the creation of this show, I invite you to buy one of my books, The Sketchnote Handbook or The Sketchnote Workbook, either for yourself or a friend. You can find the books at Amazon or go to peachpit.com and use the code RODY40 for 40% off.